and welcome to the Days of Learning podcast. I am your host, David Nelson, and I'm just thrilled to have these three individuals who I've known for a while, but each of them represents a, a little bit different components of the Wisconsin Coverdell Stroke Program. You know, something that we're going to get into, this idea of cardiovascular disease and stroke is really an important consideration for the state of Wisconsin and for our area. As we know, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer, and we're still working on that, though uh, we've made some progress. We still have a ways to go. And today with me, I have uh, Dr. John Bowser. I have Kyleen, Kyleen Macau and Chandler Hansen. Welcome, everybody. Hey. Hi. Thanks for having us here. It's great to have you be here to tell us about the program. You know, before we get into the questions, I'm going to tell everybody who you are. And right in order, we have Chandler Hansen, whose pronouns are she and her. Chandler is a, the outreach specialist with the Wisconsin Coverdell Stroke Program. She holds a bachelor's degree in health promotion and health equity from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and has been a member of the Coverdell team within the Wisconsin Department of Health Services since January 2022. Welcome, Chandler. Hi, Dr. Nelson. Happy to be here. All right. Kylie Macau is, uh, her pronouns are she, her. She is the quality improvement specialist with the Wisconsin Coverdell Stroke Program. She has a bachelor's in public health and community health education from the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. Kylene has been working with the Wisconsin Coverdell Stroke Program within the Wisconsin Department of Health Services since January of 2021. 2021, not 20,000, 2021. Welcome, <laughs> Kylene. Hi, thank you again, Dr. Noss, for having us. And Dr. John Bowser serves as the program director of the Wisconsin Coverdell Stroke Program with the Wisconsin Department of Health Services and has been in that position since 2020. He holds a PhD in population health sciences from the University of Wisconsin-Madison with an emphasis in social and behavioral health. Prior to DHS, he held positions with the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction as a research and evaluation consultant and with the UW Population Health Institute as a program evaluator. Welcome, John. Hey, thanks for having us. Oh, it is a pleasure to have you be here. You know, I'm going to start with each of you just to tell us a little bit about you. I love the Wisconsin lineage that each of you is has either gone to school and or grown up in Wisconsin. But tell us about how you got here. John, I'm going to start with you. Can I start with you about how you got to the position you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So for my path, so I've been doing the, this type of work, you know, in public health about 15 or so years. Um, and I think like a lot of people, is in a completely linear track. So my undergraduate degree was in, in marketing. Um, Truth be told is because I didn't know what in the world I wanted to do with myself at that point in my life. Um, but then eventually, a few years after that, um, I ended up getting my master's degree in uh, human and community resources with a health promotion emphasis uh, from UW Stevens Point. Um, and then a few years down the road, I came to UW, um, started with the Population Health Institute, and then enrolled in the PhD program um, and, and got there. And so on paper, the path from, you know, marketing to health promotion to population health sounds like a really well, you know, sort of planned out uh, career agenda. 
um, you know, good thinking, John. That's actually not how it happened. It just sort of fell into place that way. But, you know, it was good. Um, so, but from there, my work at UW was focused primarily on uh, childhood fitness and aerobic fitness. So when I was at UW, uh, we had, you know, a couple grant partnerships with the Department of Public Instruction focusing on childhood fitness. And so it was this collaboration of UW, uh, Department of Public Instruction, or DPI, um, and DHS. Uh, wrapped up things at UW. I was there for about seven years altogether. Um, had a young family. We weren't really looking to you know, move all around the country in pursuit of a faculty position or anything like that. And the research and evaluation position that you mentioned in my bio opened up. It was a new position at DPI. And so I managed to slide over there. And a little bit of my work there was on chronic disease, um, on childhood fitness, but actually at that time, most of the money in the Student Services Prevention and Wellness Unit, SSPW, which is what I was a part of, um, was actually on uh, mental health, mental health and violence prevention. And so a lot of my work was in that area. Um, and then, you know, after that, I did have a brief stop at UW-Milwaukee and, and stayed there through uh, my contract and then came to DHS when the opportunity arose really to lead this program, to read the Coverdell Stroke Program. And for me, it was, it was a great opportunity to, you know, come back to a focus on chronic disease, um, you know, to really, you know, address, you know, those, you know, the upstream variables and then also, you know, what we see um, in, in terms of the clinical manifestations and post-discharge, uh, but also the opportunities to lead the program, which is, you know, is something that I'm excited to be at in this position to kind of, you know, allow, you know, my ideas to, you know, to try to help, you know, address stroke in Wisconsin, but more importantly, kind of quarterback this effort where we have my outstanding colleagues um, who are responsible for so much of the great work we do. And so being in that unique position, um, it's, it's been great. Thanks, John. It really is important. I love when people talk about the, the circuitous nature of uh, the nonlinear nature and often circuitous when you talk about the idea of public health. And so you are exemplifying that and all the things that you learned along the way, I'm sure have, have benefited you. We'll talk about that. Uh, Kylene, I'm going to have you go next. Go ahead, please. All right. Yeah, I mean, I also followed a little bit in that as linear path, um, at least in school, for how I got here. Um, so growing up, um, I was surrounded by sports um, and the, the medical care that athletes need. Um, so a um, few injuries myself. So going into college, I was like, okay, I want to go into the medical field. I want to make a difference in young athletes' lives. Like that was my thought going into college. Um, and then really found that I wanted to have a more personal approach. And I took a public health introduction to public health course and was extremely inspired by it. Um, so I was very lucky that at the time, the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse was the only undergraduate school with an accredited public health program. So um, I was able to move through that program after, you know, for a little bit, I sidetracked and thought I wanted to do business. Um, that was not for me. <laughs> um, so um, going into public health, I was able to go through the University of Wisconsin lacrosse program, which um, was extremely inspiring. And I was able to really connect with um, professors and work on advocacy and different things um, throughout my time there. So I was actually able to advocate at the Capitol for Tobacco 21 in um, February 2020, which was really a catalyst for my passion 
for addressing um, risk factors and things like that. So I developed a passion for tobacco cessation and <laughs> a lot of projects surrounding that that year. Um, and then we had a preceptorship. So to graduate, we had to complete a semester long preceptorship. And um, it was <laughs> it was during the pandemic. So um, reaching out to some of the sites wasn't really working out. Um, so I actually, our, another one of our colleagues, Dot Bluma, um, has known my family for a very long time. And she was having a side conversation with my dad. And part of the program, the UWL program, is the professors reach out to the sites. The students are told, you are not involved. <laughs> But the process was not working because of um, the pandemic and how overrun and um, like the capacity just wasn't there for people to really take on students. Um, so with that, I got permission from my professor <laughs> to reach out and was lucky enough to um, get a spot as um, the, I was previously the community outreach specialist. Mm -hmm. Um, for my first year, um, and so it was, it was just a great experience to be able to work with the team while I was still in school, and then I was able to get a full-time position after I graduated as the quality improvement is, improvement specialist. So it was, it's just been very. Um, I just feel blessed to work with these these people you know, um, and continue to do this work. It's, it's a good story, and uh, I'm good friends with Dr. Gilmore, so I know of the lacrosse program quite well, and he has quite a lineage along with the other people in the program uh, for developing our up-and-coming leaders in public health, and, and you must have done something right because they you went from an un unpaid associate to a full-time position, and that's a good thing to do, so congratulations in that space. Chandler, <laughs> tell us a little bit about who you are and what role you're what you how you came to be in your role currently. Yeah, so very similar to my colleagues, not a linear path either. So I had started my freshman year at UW um, on a pre-nursing course and actually got hired as a CNA at one of the nursing homes here in Madison. And I discovered through that that maybe not direct patient care was my direct pathway that I wanted to pursue, but still wanted to be within the realm of healthcare and took a really big interest in public health specifically. Also really what kind of drew me into public health was the really wide reach you can have, especially being at the state health department, which we'll get to that part. But the amount of people you're able to impact through different program implementation and things like that. So really cared for my patients and maybe I have seen some things on the inner workings that I thought could be addressed through policy change work within the government. So kind of switched my path and it worked out really well. I changed my major from pre-nursing to health promotion, health equity. And I was actually the first cohort to graduate from UW-Madison with that degree. So very honored that that had just been kind of introduced at all of the same prereqs as nursing did. So a really simple transition for me. Um, Post-grad or post-undergrad, I got a job at a local health department in substance use prevention, which I've always had a passion for was personally affected by that and kind of really wanted to see what I could do to help make a change in that realm. Loved my job there, but it was a little bit far from home. So I was starting to look for somewhere closer. And then this popped up, um, working with the Wisconsin Carbidal Stroke Program, which actually 
was kind of perfect because in my experience of working at the nursing home, I had obviously worked with quite a few patients who had had strokes and I'd seen the things that can happen post-stroke and obviously learned a lot about how we can prevent that and what can be made to be better. So this kind of came along at a perfect time and I already had some experience and interest within it. And I love doing this work because it's also allowed me to use that a really a health equity lens with the different community outreach and things like that, that we're doing with these populations. So I was very happy and honored to be a part of this team and able to use that expertise in new projects and things we're implementing here. I love I love each of those stories and thank you Chandler for that because um, you know we never know where we're going to end up and some things happen by chance and I like to think things happen for a higher reasoning and a higher purpose than that but we could have people listen to each of your stories and talk about entry into public health because you're talking about really the language of of, of public health the idea of health equity health promotion policy at multiple levels, the idea of wide reach. I really like that phrase that, that someone used. And then naturally, when we talk about this idea of uh, things that go with stroke, the idea of uh, cardiovascular fitness, the idea of tobacco cessation, substance use prevention, it really does fit in well, whether you know it or not with your work. And, and as Kyleen had mentioned, the idea of being inspired, and I love that phrase. I love that, love that phrase of being inspired. So we talked a little bit about each of you. You know, let's start with the basics. Uh, John, tell us what, what, what stroke is. Yeah, so stroke, I mean, I, on base sense, with stroke, we have you know, two families. We have ischemic stroke and hemorrhagic stroke. So ischemic stroke is there's a clot in the artery in the brain. Um, it stops, prohibits blood flow, and as a result, you know, brain cells die, lose functionality, and some people sadly uh, pass away from the stroke. Uh, the other is hemorrhagic stroke, um, where there's bleed uh, in the brain. Um, roughly 87% of strokes fall under the ischemic category. The other 13 um, are under the hemorrhagic. Um, hemorrhagic strokes outcomes tend to be more severe, um, more serious um, than that of ischemic strokes. And you know, it's you know. What you, you brought up the question, what is a stroke? And I do think kind of you know, sidetracking a little bit, I feel like that is one of the things from a public health perspective that not a lot of people are aware of. You know, I, I, I think as a stroke, I think whenever I tell people what I do for a living, I almost always get a story of someone that they know who had a stroke sure. um, and either passed away or suffering from the effects of it. But if you maybe explain through an elevator pitch, what is a stroke? I'm not sure how many people actually know what it is. And I think that's, that is, um, you know, something that, that we like to pursue, I think is from an educational standpoint, but that's stroke. I mean, it's the fifth leading cause of death um, in Wisconsin. We have um, on average slightly over 11,000 strokes uh, per year. Um, you know, there are disparities that exist. Uh, we know compared to white non-Hispanic um, adults, black adults have higher rates of, of stroke incidence, um, stroke uh, mortality rates. Uh, we know that disparities exist in terms of rural versus urban. Um, stroke patients in rural locations tend to have worse outcomes. Um, a big part of that is, you know, how quickly they're able to receive the care they need to address the stroke that they themselves are experiencing. Um, and, you know, part of, part of that is not 
you know, no two strokes are the same. Um, you know, they can be categorized, they can be in locations, but I mean, the experience of people, um, it, it varies from person to person. You know, I want to ask, Kyleen, as uh, someone with a background in community health education, and I was fascinated by John's thought about many people just don't know what, what, a, what a stroke is. You know, how much you think about the, how do we build capacity in that space? What have some, been some of the things that you've been thinking about? Well, with that, I think we really need to educate those that are younger because it mm. is something that um, can affect anyone um, and family members. So, like, if you go into a room, most people know someone who's had a stroke. They just don't know what it is. And I think from a community health education standpoint, um, finding ways to really implement that or get that message mm -hmm. out. So utilizing different marketing tactics or partnering with community organizations and um, schools to really educate them. So one really cool thing that we, um, a partner of ours actually did, and we're um, currently writing up a success story on, is that um, Freighter worked with, well, here with Freighter. So Freighter works with a launch program um, through two different school locations. And they gave these three students a task. And the students decided that um, to create a stop animation video um, of the signs and symptoms of stroke and like the importance of calling 911. And um, this stop animation video was like the audience and the priority population was younger adults. So um, a really unique way that they were able to get the message out there. So I think one of the things we'll talk about it a lot more later is our community partnerships and um, leveraging our community, not, <laughs> but utilizing our community partnerships and their input to really create resources and education that can impact our youth and obviously educate them. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that 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 um, that example about the signs and systems uh, symptoms using stop action uh, film as well as to have it be uh, targeted at a younger group. Chandler, I, I want to bring you in because I think it's important as you think about the idea of outreach. And and uh, John mentioned this about the idea of where where the challenges lie when you talk about uh, the different groups that are more likely to get to have a stroke and be impacted by it. What is some of your what are some of your thoughts about this from the the lens of health equity? What what are some of the things that you're 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 seeing and talking about with community based organizations about this? Yeah, so I'm really happy you asked this, actually. So I think the most important part and thing we can do to reach these populations is meeting them where they're at. So that is kind of why we wanted to be partnering with these community-based organizations, because they're within these people's communities. They're trusted members of the communities, which is probably of the utmost importance as they have that inherent trust and relationship built with these people. So they know that this message is coming through and that it will be interpreted the correct way and really that they're getting correct information. So I think definitely with these outreach strategies, the most important part is getting to the people where they are in a way that they can actually understand and kind of sometimes break it down to the simplest level of what is a stroke and then what can we do to prevent it and build up from there. 
so yeah, just kind of establishing that baseline, meeting people where they are, and then doing what we can to meet them where they are. So yeah, that's a, I, I love that phrase. And I want to have John as the quarterback of this team. What does that mean to you when you talk about meeting people where they are? And do you have an example that that, that Chandler's talking about that has been uh, impactful for you as well as for the team? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, meeting people where they are, you know, it involves, you know, I think too often, and I, you know, I think in public health, this is true, especially, I mean, we come from the state level. Um, it can feel like a one directional relationship and meeting people where they are is doing what we can to break down that inadequate communication structure. And it's making sure that the people that we are trying to reach, the people we're trying to serve, they're the ones leading the conversation. They're the ones who are telling us what, what are the needs of the people that they work with. And only by understanding the things that we can't understand without those conversations, can we you know, effectively reach people and meet them uh, where they are. I mean, you know, one example, and you know, we, one of the things that I love about this program is we have a lot of freedom um, to push forward with health promotion materials and really you know, be creative. And you know, that's why having Kylie and Chandler on the team is so great because they, they know so much more about graphic design and health promotion than I do. So it's awesome to have them here. Um, they are completely they're invaluable to, to the program. And one of the things we're doing is a health promotion campaign that is focused on uh, the primary risk factors of stroke. So a lot of our materials look at the signs and symptoms of stroke and, and call 911, but we also want to dive into that primary prevention aspect. And one of the, one of the risk factors is, is tobacco use and, and tobacco cessation. And so, you know, when we've, we've been drafting up these materials, they'll be available hopefully shortly um, in, in May or summer of, of 23, so very shortly after this. Um, as we were doing these drafting, the language used to describe tobacco, that's important. And so we use the phrase commercial tobacco, and that is to respect you know, the American Indian population and to make sure that there is that differentiation between that and ceremonial tobacco. And so we had these community conversations to talk about this and then and ask people, you know, you know, what do they think about you know, these, these different posters? And someone brought up that the phrase commercial tobacco might confuse the people that they work with. And this was, this was out of Milwaukee. And you know, that is something that we, I don't think any of us had really thought about. I mean, we were like, use commercial tobacco for that purpose and it's important to use that. And so as a result now, we, have, we will have two separate kind of posters, flyers, social media, one that focuses on that commercial tobacco usage, um, has the American Indian tobacco quit line number, and one that talks about tobacco product use and as and as the other quit line. And had we not actively reached out to people and gotten their input and tried to understand, you know, how's the best way to reach the people they work with, that never would have happened. That, that is a really great example, especially having uh, recognizing and honoring our Native American brothers and sisters and their use tobacco in ceremonial um, uh, practices. Uh, Kylene, when you talk, when you think about this from the perspective of meeting people where they are, what does that say to you from a quality improvement perspective? How has that really influenced your way of looking at this work from that lens? Yeah, so um, 
<laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to think of what exactly. Um, with the quality improvement, I think that like we will be tracking our, we already track our Bella materials. So I think that tracking and listening to the feedback on how risk factor RIC materials are like recepted were um, like received and like what we can do better with these types of um, promotions and marketing. So I think um, there's really room for growth in how we we are able to meet them where they're at. Because as a state health department, we do have restrictions with um, what we can, like how much we can post or like we can't have our own social media accounts. So everything goes through um, the DHS accounts. And a lot of the people that we are trying to reach don't necessarily follow those accounts. So with these types of projects, we have a lot of room for growth in finding different avenues to open those lines of communication. Um, as John said, it is, it is really one-sided at this point because of those types of restrictions. So the, the community partnerships that we have developed are really an avenue for that growth. Yeah, you answered that really well. I didn't mean to trip you up in that space because I think the idea of too many times when we think of quality improvement, we think of an internal process and both Chandler and John have, have really spoken to an external process. And, and some of it we can be saying, okay, what have they told us? And I think the important thing from a community engagement perspective, and that's how I strive to practice my own research and education is, and what have I learned from that? right? I'm not to educate the other. It's really for me to adjust my practices based upon what people are telling me. And I think that is so important with, you know, I think we all know when people hear of Wisconsin, I don't know what they think of, but, it, you know, it's a vast state. It is a very large geographic area with multiple cultures, uh, including Native American. There are urban areas, there are rural areas, and there are almost frontier areas that are out that that we that we live in and having meeting people where they are in all those spaces can be challenging. So let's go to that. Chandler, can you speak to some of your things that you've done to uh, to engage the community around this topic? Yeah, so I think probably one of the most important things that we've done in this realm is creating our new partnership designation, which is the Coverdell Community Stroke Partner. So how we did this was a very strategic um, recruiting process. So earlier in the year, our unit had done partner mapping of any partners, like community-based organizations, any partners we'd had any interaction with. So it's a very robust list. And then we kind of went from there and looked for different community-based organizations representing different areas of the state, different populations within the state. And people we really want this messaging to get to and people we want in these conversations. So from there, we've got our list of partners and we're always looking to grow that. We're continually trying to grow this partnership, get this messaging as far as we can. So within these meetings specifically, we offer open forum. So this is where we let everybody share what they want out of the partnership, what they expect to get out of it in return, the ways they think this may go. And we really open up those lines of communication between both ourselves as the 
at the state health department and these community-based organizations, but also opening up lines between these community-based organizations to interact with one another. Because so often you'll see, especially within the realm of public health, things may become siloed. And this has been a really great way for us to kind of break down those silos and work collaboratively collaboratively together to address stroke within each of our own communities. And as John kind of shared earlier, these meetings have allowed for excellent feedback and have actually like, we're working in partnership with different organizations on various projects now, because they told us the needs of their community. And now we're trying to work on ways collaboratively with them that we can address those needs. I, I love that because it really takes a, um, a, a community-centric perspective. And I was even thinking, as you, as you were talking, Chandler, that could even take a person-centered perspective because people who make up the partnership are often care about this issue or have had either been themselves or someone that they love impacted by stroke. So it takes on a level of importance that is uh, it's hard to even measure. John, when you talk about this idea of the of this program, the Coverdale program, give us the basics of what it is. I'm hearing we're kind of around the edges, but tell us about what the Coverdale program's purpose is and really how it came to be and where you see it going as an order as a as a state entity. Yeah, so kind of the nuts and bolts of it is the Wisconsin Coverdale Stroke Program is we're funded as a part of the Paul Coverdale. National Acute Stroke Program, uh, which is a CDC-funded uh, program. Uh, it's named after Senator Paul Coverdell of Georgia, who died of a stroke while in office uh, in the year 2000. Uh, Wisconsin's been funded. This is our third iteration. And so we've been funded for, we're in our 11th year, 11th year of, of work in the state. And so for the first nine, 10 years, the big focus and it, it remains a massive focus, is working with hospitals and EMS agencies all around Wisconsin. So the goal is to reduce the burden of stroke in, in the state. That's kind of the, you know, the one sentence um, goal. But a big part of that is working with hospitals and EMS agencies through you know, data-driven quality improvement efforts, um, you know, educational opportunities, forming a community of practice amongst hospital and EMS partners across the state uh, to, to identify areas where stroke care can be improved. And so we know with stroke, you know, when the event happens, time is, is such an important factor. So every second that there is the blockage, then cells are dying. So naturally we wanna get people from the time of the event to the time of treatment to make that time, you know, as, as short as possible. And so it is a big quality improvement task in a clinical sense. And so that's been a big part of that work and that continues. Um, we have quarterly meetings with our hospital and our EMS partners. Uh, we have biannual Wisconsin Stroke Coalition meetings and those service opportunities for us to share and to go back and forth about areas of improvement. And you know, from that community of practice model, that has allowed us, you know, in a more clinical frame of mind, um, to you know lead to, you know, not only kind of more global, just how do we, you know, make care better, more effective, more timely, um, but specific elements within the realm of that stroke continuum of care to address. Um, for example, the pandemic brought about more use of telemedicine, right? Not just in stroke, but just in general, and we saw that as an opportunity to address that rural urban disparity that I talked about earlier. 
So how can we increase the use of Telestroke to improve care for people all across Wisconsin? And so that's been an effort that we've been undergoing for the past 18 months, um, meeting, developing materials. We'll be having a Telestroke toolkit that will be released to the public very shortly. Um, and so that's sort of the, the gist of the program in that clinical sense. It's been working with hospitals, working with EMS, community of practice, just getting everybody to talk and that data-driven quality improvement. And that's been the lion's share of the work um, for the first you know, decade or so. But then as you know, Chandler and Kyleen have, have talked about, um, we've then moved over into more of a community emphasis in addition to that clinical emphasis because the continuum of stroke starts before the event happened and it goes long after you're discharged from the hospital. Yeah, really good answer, and and uh, we are appreciative of of the Coverdell organization for sponsoring this for the past eleven years. So many times we have we have projects that are two or three year grant funded, and then they go away, and then suddenly everybody realizes that they wanted to continue. But we also know that there are resources that are that are that are in this. Uh, Kyleen, can you point to uh, what has happened from that clinical perspective, from a QI? How have things gotten better in this space? as you think about yeah. this improvement. I'm really glad you asked that. So um, just this past year, our epidemiologist, Kajan, um, really worked closely with the city of West Dallas Fire Department and Aurora to address a documentation issue. So with, um, with hospital and EMS, um, EMS pre-notifies the hospital when they have someone with a suspected stroke patient. So with this, um, they weren't documenting it as well. So they found out that there were some issues with um, the, the system, the form that they were working with. And so they worked to address those issues in the form, train um, paramedics to work with the new form, and then were able to increase the pre-notification documentation by 94%. So it went from zero to 94% documentation in just um, three months. Wow. We'll just, we'll just quit right, right there while we're ahead. <laughs> yeah. So we actually have a story on that um, process and what um, went on with their work on our website. So it's one of our success stories and it is entitled Strong partnership leads to increased documentation of EMS pre-notification, City of West Dallas Fire Department, and Advocate Aurora West Dallas Medical Center. Yeah, you'll need to, you'll need to, will you need to get me the website? But I think that that's a good example of this. And, and, and when you talk about a, a win like that, uh, Kylene, when did the light come on for the people to realize that if we document this, we can we can put more resources, we can do a better job of both identification and treatment in this space? Yeah, so this was really brought upon by our quarterly report cards. So Kajan, again, our epidemiologist, runs quarterly report cards for the EMS and Dabumo does hospital quarterly report cards. So um, through our our meetings with EMS and hospital, we present data at these meetings and opportunities to discuss why things may be off the mark or why things might be higher. So successes and barriers. Um, and so this conversation was really developed out of seeing the data and having 
conversations going forward on how to fix it. So it was, it was really an awesome win for our program. I love that story. And, you know, Chandler, you know, you and I both know that uh, we have a fleeting uh, appreciation for, uh, for data in the community, right? We're more in tune with the stories and, and you get to imagine, okay, so because you've been doing this for about a year now, and then the other programs have had 11 years of quality improvement, you get 10 more years of funding and resources. What do you see out there from a community engagement perspective? What would you like to see happen? I think the number one thing I would like to see happen is obviously a reduction in strokes and disability caused by stroke. That's the primary goal of all of this, is trying to prevent stroke. And then if we can't prevent the stroke, prevent the comorbidities that come along with it. So I think that's the number one thing that we want to see. I think also really expanding that baseline knowledge of what is a stroke and what you can do to prevent it. Thing about stroke is it shares over 90% of the same risk factors as other chronic diseases. So inherently by taking these proactive measures, you're helping to prevent diabetes, heart conditions, so on and so forth. And I think that's one of the biggest things. So really trying to build out that prevention part. I, we all know working in this realm that prevention isn't always the easiest part to emphasize because it, you always hear the success story after this bad event happened, but really trying to draw that allure in of taking care of ourselves, taking the measures necessary to put ourselves in the healthiest point possible. And I think that's our hu a huge role here of engaging with the communities is getting them in a place where they know the resources that are available, help increase access to set resources, and really just kind of being sounding board, being there however we can and increasing awareness. I, I love that. I love that you know, those things that you said, the reduction in stroke overall, the idea of knowledge of baseline factors, and the idea of connecting to other chronic diseases like diabetes and knowing what resources are available. You know what, I'm gonna ask each of you this idea. It's a big question. And I think that uh, this is a good venue to, to speak into it because this program is really built around equity, right? And, and the inequities that exist often by communities of color. You know, John, I'm gonna start with you because uh, you know this is as a leader of the organization, how do we build the case for needing more equity-based resources. So in other words, we need to put resources where they're needed the most. And this is often goes with communities that are economically challenged. What are your thoughts on that? So, you know, as far as building the case, you know, I mean, the data is, is pretty clear uh, that these disparities exist, these, these inequities exist, um, you, know, you know, throughout Wisconsin and, and throughout throughout the United States as a whole. As far as addressing them and, and that more community-faced effort, one area, because there's so much that you can focus on, because I mean, there's, it's such a complex thing. And I think one area of need to address these inequities is after the stroke happens. So, and I want to talk about that because we're talking about, you know, time is brain, right? Time is so an important characteristic when you have a stroke. You need to get the care as soon as possible. That same thing can be said after you leave the hospital mm. because more people are surviving their strokes than ever before because of advancements that have happened in medical care. 
But that doesn't mean everyone leaves the hospital with no deficits, with no long-standing needs, without a need for speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, all sorts of things that they didn't need you know, two days ago, but now all of a sudden they need. And we know that in terms of regaining those capacities, again, it's the time factor. It's the days, the weeks, the months after the event that are so pivotal towards gaining back that range of motion, uh, gaining back, you know, those any, you know, cognitive, you know, damage that happened as a result of the event. And that's, again, where the inequities come into play. Occupational therapy is not cheap. Getting these resources, navigating the healthcare system is not easy. I have a PhD from the School of Medicine and Public Health at UW-Madison. When my family needs medical care, it confuses me. And so it's important to address these inequities that we don't forget about the fact that while more people are surviving, we're also losing in terms of quality adjusted life years, disability adjusted life years, these metrics that we focus on as far as quality of life. And so to address the inequities, I think one thing, one area of focus that is important are more community-based resources to help people navigate those needs. And I'm talking about community health workers, care transition interventionalists, patient navigators, oftentimes, particularly with CHWs, these are people who are in the community. They have a unique understanding of the communities in which they serve. And so we have colleagues, Kylie and Chandler, and I are fortunate to have colleagues in our unit at DHS who are working on this, who are you know, looking to increase the capacity um, and the number of CHWs in the community. And I think to address inequity, if we're talking about stroke here, and again, there's a lot of places we can pick, if I'm thinking post-discharge, I think that's an area of focus that can ultimately make for a more equitable um, society as it relates to stroke. I appreciate that because uh, some people claim to say, Nelson, you need to stay in your lane. And But I would, I would maintain in this particular instance that this is the lane because the idea of prevention and public health practice is not just about the healthcare space after it happens. Well, in this case, as you're talking about it, it is. But it's also the inequities that lead to that, right? The idea of safe, stable, affordable housing, the base of, of, of having safe and, and affordable and accessible places to play, having food that is, is not only uh, uh, available, but available in a way that's nutritious to, to people. And, and so, but I, you really bring a great point about this idea of partnerships. Uh, Kylene, take it from John about this idea of uh, if we're talking about equity, where would you land? And he mentioned the idea of having uh, after the, you know, after the discharge. But what would you say about equity in the space uh, with the Coverdell program? <laughs> Got to unmute. I think I'll take it back one step, um, not necessarily pre-stroke at this point, but um, right after the stroke. Um, how can we reach people where they're at so that they know what to do when they have that stroke, so that they know to call 911 so that um, the paramedics can pre-notify the hospital so the hospital can get the care team going. We have done so much work um, as the Coverdell program to um, educate or like give them connect them with the resources to know like the guidelines of, okay, we want 
um, what is it, 30 minutes to CT, it's all, so many numbers, but like um, they want the certain amount of time to CT, the certain amount of time to activation. And if people don't have that trust and understand that EMS is really, or at least pre-notification is extremely important to the hospital, um, care can really be delayed. And this is another extremely difficult option or um, barrier, as John was mentioning earlier with the rural areas, because um, they're so much further from hospitals that may have whatever stroke certification level that they may need. So like maybe taking that hour, two hour car ride, <laughs> like they're already losing a lot of that time because most treatments have 4.5 hours after symptom onset. So I think um, one of the biggest things for me would be focusing on how to addressing barriers there. So why people are not calling 911. Obviously it's expensive. Um, that's, <laughs> that, that really stinks. But, um, you know, is, is it more expensive than the OT, physical therapy, all the other services that are needed after stroke? If you have, if you get to the hospital quicker, can you eliminate those post-stroke barriers? Is that cost-benefit analysis enough? So, like, just working with community partners, I mean, and just the community to figure out, okay, how do we get you there faster? How do we get you to know the signs and symptoms, know that 911 and time is brain? That's a really great answer, and I like the idea of thinking about this pre-call, but, and we talk about this, uh, the inequities, you know, one of the inequities that we see in this space that Kylie mentioned is the idea of economic status, right? It is a, it is a big factor in people, whether they go to the ED or not, uh, and whether they seek care or not, and whether they can have the aftercare they're not, not to mention when areas where there are inequities and, and community connections, a lack of them, that these services just aren't available to people in, in equal measures. Chandler, I'm teeing it up for you, sister, that uh, you get to take it anywhere you want because you do the community engagement. You walk the streets. What are you seeing about inequities and what do we need to do about this? Yeah, and actually, so this is something that came up during our Wisconsin Stroke Coalition meeting was people not calling 911. And that's something we're seeing across all fronts. We're hearing from all of our EMS partners, hearing from our clinical partners, that people are arriving by foot, by private transport. And kind of what that's really helped inform us on maybe our next initiative and what we focus on is how can we increase this public knowledge of why it's so important to call 911. So from, I think, one of the ways that we can kind of break it down in the simplest terms are cost of an ambulance ride and a regular visit to the ED versus that time is brain loss. So you've lost that much time and they kind of do a cost benefit analysis and compare the two of how it can be done because money talks, unfortunately, in a lot of these, a lot of times people may be coming from places of not having necessarily the financial resources and that's a big barrier in receiving this care. So breaking that down in the simplest way possible about, yes, this may be a large upfront cost, but with the long-term costs associated um, and then the quality of life afterwards, trying to put it down in those terms and really emphasizing the importance of that pace of care is 
something that I think we as a program are trying to work on. Um, our partners have a really big interest in as well and how we can kind of improve that in any way, shape or form. There's been a lot of really different innovative ideas that we've heard from partners that I'm excited to see how they may turn out. You know, I'm gonna follow up with that Chandler. I really appreciate the answer, but it sounds like what you're saying and the work that I do with communities of color and low income communities often means trust building, right? And getting people to say that we're not gonna we're not gonna make you leave your home because you can't pay for an ambulance ride, right? We're not gonna make you we're not gonna make you homeless because of that. How do you build trust with communities around this issue to get them to get the care that they needed? Because at the end of the day, if we don't get the care, you're not gonna have the quality of life that you 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 desire. Sorry, I was unmuting and muting. Um, so I think one of the really cool things that Carvedell and a lot of our EMS partners have been doing is mobile integrated health and community paramedicine are increasing practices across the state of Wisconsin. And that is a community paramedic meeting you directly where you are. And I know a lot of the different agencies partnered with us are, they have community health fairs, various community events, and they're putting their faces within these communities that they're serving, trying to show them that they're there, that they do care, and really trying to emphasize the fact that they do want the better for the health of the community. And I think that's been that they will continue to demonstrate this through that direct outreach to the communities that they live in and serve. I know hospitals are holding health fairs now that COVID restrictions are lifting again. There's a lot of different ways where people are trying to engage with their communities from the health care standpoint, EMS standpoint, and community-based organization. I think making themselves seen in a day-to-day -day light is one of the most important things that can be done so that they are a recognizable and trusted face and member of their communities. So I think once again, that kind of meeting people where they are. And there is a wide array of how we've seen this being done and how it can be done, whether it be community events. I know there's a lot of different 5Ks, farmers markets, things like that. And I think that's really the most important part is putting yourself out there and trying to form those connections. I know we've got some really great partners in the Coverdell program who are passionate about the work they do and truly care about the patients that they serve. So I think that's a, been kind of an ongoing and will be a continual effort to continue to build that trust and relationship. I, that is really um, a, a beautiful image. And thank you for, for painting that, Chandler. Um, John, when you hear that and when you hear about what uh, your team is doing, let's let's imagine out, you know, 10 years from now when we're, we've, in, we've invested 10 more years of, of resources in this space. What do you envision for such for the program like the Covered Out program? I think you know what I envision and what I hope for. You know, I think we've spoken about it. You know, a little bit about you know increased knowledge of stroke by the general public, having that post discharge you know path towards care being something that's a little easier to navigate. And I think ultimately it's you know it's about a stronger clinical and community connection in where they are equal partners. Obviously, you know, the, the process of stroke care, um, you know, receiving a thrombectomy, I mean, that's obviously clearly a clinical thing, but roughly 80% of strokes are preventable. That, that's the estimate that we have. And so, you know, and that, that reflects in general terms, when we talk about, you know, what part of your health is impacted outside of those clinical walls, it's still 
that high that high number. And so, for the Coverdell Stroke Program, I think it's it's taking what we're doing now with the hospital partners, the EMS partners, the community partners, and making it truly you know, what we see and what we talk about with that stroke care continuum. It begins and ends in the community, and it's making sure that everyone understands that when a stroke happens, call 911, get to the hospital. That said, if we want to reduce the burden of stroke in Wisconsin, it requires this understanding that in the community, we can take the steps individually and we can take the steps to help those that we know and love and that we live with, that they can prevent the stroke from ever happening in the first place. And it, it has to be that relationship, that synergistic relationship uh, to truly reflect you know, what is the stroke care um, continuum. Thank you. Uh, Kylene, same question. When you see 10 years out with the resources that you need, what are you seeing from a quality improvement perspective of, of what are some of your leading edges that you guys are working from? Well, I think that one's a really tough one because of the ever-expanding um, medical system and the treatments. Um, but obviously, like we want to continue with our hospital and EMS partners to follow guidelines and be able to meet those metrics um, or like those time frames that are best practice. So following that, but also developing or figuring out ways that, um, I mean, more probably more qualitatively um, evaluating the connections or like just figuring out best practice for these types of connections. So, I mean, there's a lot about like forming these community clinical linkages and CDC just released a toolkit and things like that on that. But I think really making, melding it, as John said, and turning it into a full community of practice, because at this point we do have WSB, which is um, biannually, but every single one is quarterly, well, EMS and hospital are quarterly by themselves. So how do we really continue to um, foster those relationships in areas for quality improvement? Because um, having these conversations, like I had talked about before, led to the pre-notification quality improvement. So how can we work with community organizations, maybe be that, that um, hospitals referring to those community organizations to see if um, that can make a true change? So really, um, maybe it's more along the lines of implementing more of a focus on social determinants of health and then how we can connect clinical community and make it all work together. I love that because it's uh, it's the work that um, I'm often engaged with is how do we make those connections and strengthen those connections. Chandler, you now have a, a, a 10 years out, you have a coalition that touches every part of the state. What's that look like for you? I think a big part of that is having representation from every different sector, because to make these important connections, you need representation from all these different places to be able to get connected to them, obviously. So I think having representation from all different areas and sectors within each respective community is something that'll be huge. And then kind of within that realm of these community clinical linkages are really the patient-centered outcomes. How do these patients see the results of their stroke? What do they consider as having 
recovered, rehabilitated after their stroke. So those patient-centered outcomes and like really tracking them through this whole circle because a lot of times they'll leave the hospital and you know we're not really always sure what may come afterwards. So really closing those loops of care, giving them that follow-up care, and that may be coming from their community and also finding that support within their community, whether it be stroke support groups, different sorts of groups, or even participating within this coalition to know that there are resources, there are people, there are things that can be done to help improve things after stroke. I love it. And the idea of representation is, a, is an important part of the the. the the naming of equity, right? The thing of, of who are we speaking with, you know, not are we, who are we speaking at or for, but who are we speaking with? You know, and I think that we all would know as much as we like to paint a, a rosy picture, if we had all the resources in the world, we know that we're still going to have stroke in 10 years. But if we can get people that both, uh, if we can have a prevention in that space, we can get the aftercare in, the, in that space, we can build back uh, uh, some semblance of, of quality of life with people. And in another work that I do, we don't expect perfection, but we look for progress. And I have to thank each of you for really um, being champions in this space because, you know, I don't think everybody realizes that you kind of guys, you, you do your work quietly and you do your work without fanfare, and but you really are... Uh, uh, a close-knit organization. I can see in your answers how they connected to one another. John, is there anything else that you want to you want to say to the audience at this time? I guess you know I want to say public health matters, and we've you know we talk about these complex systems, and you know a, a lot of what we do, and then try to bring together partners and, and all you know these high-level things. There have been a couple of times in this position, I've been here two and a half years, where I've heard a story from one of our partners. We have a lot of health promotion materials, one of which you know, I've mentioned this, the signs and symptoms of stroke, the BFAST acronym. There have been a couple of times that I've been told that somebody picked up a magnet at a health event and they were at home and something felt off. They felt their face, the facial droop. They saw the magnet. They called 911, they got to the hospital, it might have saved their life. And that makes my week, it makes my month. And I, you know, I say that story to make clear the fact that it's about people, this stuff matters, and whether you're in stroke or any part of public health, we're not shouting at the wind. It does make a difference, it does save lives, and I'm honored to be a part of this collective effort and this community of public health professionals. Well, I think that you said it pretty well, John, and, and um, I, public health does matter. You all matter, and we thank you for your efforts in this area. John, Kyleen, and Chandler, thank you for coming on the Days of Learning uh, podcast today, and uh, have a wonderful rest of your day.